This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station, also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections on the air every Sunday at 1 p.m., and we replay Mondays now at 2 p.m. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. And we also now have an all-new Twitter account. So be one of the five followers. (laughs) If you sign up early, sorry, we don't have (laughs) t-shirts. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter at uh, Indigo Radio underscore Vermont. These shows are recorded and will be uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. Uh, This is Anna Milani. I'm here with Josh. Hey, everyone. And we are both teachers, educators in the Southern Vermont area. Uh, We also work with the Spark Teacher Licensure Program here in Southern Vermont. And uh, it's a beautiful Sunday. We're happy to be in the studio. It has... uh, we're sort of slowly coming back into the studio and it's great to be doing shows again. I know. I think this is the first time since that I've done a show with somebody <laughs> on the air live. It's great to yes. have somebody to have my back. <laughs> uh, fun fact, Josh and I were in here an hour before the show to make sure we knew what we were doing with headphones. <laughs> really just being thorough about it. <laughs> anyway, we have a great show for you today. We got uh, Rick Winston for the hour with us. Rick Winston is the author of the book Red Scare in the Green Mountains, Vermont in the McCarthy Era. And he was the co-owner of Montpelier's Savoy Theater for 29 years and was programming director for the Green Mountain Film Festival for 14 years. He has taught film history at Burlington College, Community College of Vermont, Goddard College, and the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute and he's made several, um, many presentations throughout Vermont on film history. Actually, my upstairs neighbor is Emily Zervis, who is the Putney librarian. She loves Rick Winston's work. And she was telling me this morning that they had Rick Winston do a presentation on Alfred Hitchcock movies. Ooh. Yeah. So uh, we're happy to have him here today. Josh and I and a couple of others of us saw Rick speak at the Hooker Dunham Theater here in Brattleboro on Friday night, uh, where he gave a talk about the Hollywood blacklist. Um, We'll get him to talk a little bit about that today. It was a time, um, 1947 it began, till about the early 1960s, where hundreds of actors, writers, directors uh, lost their livelihoods and came under scrutiny um, for being named uh, communist and got a lot of pushback um, from very conservative uh, big people in Hollywood studio heads. So we got a great show coming up. Uh, Josh, do you want to lead us into our first song? Yeah, um, I was thinking since we were talking about the blacklist, uh, why not bring out some of the other people that were affected by this too? So we got Pete Seeger. What did you learn in school today for us? Nice. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? 
I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that soldiers seldom die. I learned that everybody's free, and that's what the teacher said to me. That's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that policemen are my friends. I learned that justice never ends. I learned that murderers die for the crimes, even if we make a mistake sometime. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our leaders are the finest men, and we elect them again and again. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? What did you learn in school today, dear little boy of mine? I learned that war is not so bad. I learned about the great ones we have had. We fought in Germany and in France, and someday I might get my chance. And that's what I learned in school today. That's what I learned in school. And welcome back to Indigo Radio. That was Pete Seeger with What Did You Learn in School Today? This is uh, Josh with uh, your, my co-host Anna. And we are speaking uh, with Rick Winston in just a little bit here. Uh, we're getting prepped and ready for him to call into the studio. Um, but just wanted to give a shout out to our Spark uh, students this, uh, of this cohort. They are going to be celebrating their graduation on December 4th. Um, I know it's been quite a ride for them uh, this year with COVID and being uh, in schools and, and learning how to teach, especially under these conditions. Um, it's difficult for, I think, a lot of people, of course, we all recognize that, but um, I think for our students in particular, um, I know that they've been working hard with everything that's going on in the world and really trying to do their best for themselves and for their students and communities. So thank you, Sparklers, and uh, we look forward to celebrating all your hard work on December 4th. And we're going to do a, a film screening on the 3rd. That's right. Uh, TBA, the film. <laughs> it might be a bit of a surprise for people. <laughs> it's going to be fun. But the film will be open to the public, so that is going to come out soon, and Indigo Radio will certainly put it up on their social media. Uh, and also, you can check out the Spark Facebook page, too. Uh, so, Josh, before Rick comes on, he's going to come on shortly. Uh, he's going to be calling in today. We went to this event on Friday evening. I'm curious uh, what stood out for you about that event that was entitled The Hollywood Blacklist. Yeah, um, I remember in college learning out about this. And so getting back into uh, well, an event first off was exciting. But uh, seeing Rick talk about this brought up a lot of that for me and kind of filled in a lot more detail, too, about the, the effect that this had on people's lives. Um, he had some great clips uh, that I think highlighted really well that uh, being a being a writer or an actor, anybody within Hollywood at that time really struggled uh, if they were named as a communist, whether it was true or not, or to what degree of their involvement. Um, it really affected a lot of people and, and threw a lot of good people out of work that, you know, weren't just great actors, but also I think some uh, 
had some really smart ideas about uh, the world. So it was really, yeah, it was really interesting to see that come about. Yeah, I thought so too. All right, we have, uh, I think we have Rick calling in right now, and I was amazed by the knowledge that Rick had. Uh, I mean, he's such a historian. Um, Hey, Rick, great to have you. And uh, Josh is getting him on air right now. Hey, Rick, can you hear us? This is Anna. Hi, Anna. It's Rick. Hey, how you doing? Good. Good, great. Thank you so much for uh, being on Indigo Radio today. Are you back in Montpelier? Uh, I am. Uh, yes, I actually live in Calais, a little north of Montpelier. Oh, okay, great. Well, we were uh, just uh, introducing you to our listeners and talking about how you uh, spoke at this event that you held on the Hollywood Blacklist in Brattleboro. And I think Josh is going to start us off with um, questions. As you know, we are both teachers in southern Vermont. And so Mm -hmm. we kind of want to start there with you. I know that uh, your parents were both teachers in the New York public schools. And so we were wondering if we could start talking with you about what happened with your parents uh, and how did that influence the work that you have now done? Sure. I'll be happy to, uh, shall I start right in? Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, okay. Well, I grew up in Yonkers, New York, um, but my parents uh, had lived in the Bronx for many years, uh, moved to Westchester when I was just uh, an infant. So their experience was teaching in the New York City public schools. And they were, since 1935, I'd say, and were very, very active in the teachers' union there. And um, when the when the post-war Red Scare started to happen, um, there was a lot of uh, pressure on the teachers, um, especially the more left-leaning ones in the teachers' union. There was a law passed by the New York uh, State Legislature that was for shorthand, was known as the Feinberg Law. And it said that any teacher who, uh, any anyone who was called before a, a, a city or state committee and refused to answer questions was, um, got an automatic contempt citation. And that contempt citation would be grounds for firing. So uh, I think this law was passed in 1949 before the investigations really heated up. Mm-hmm. So I got this picture of my parents sweating out every <laughs> every school year. Well, we made it through another year without, <laughs> without having to be uh, uh, investigated. Mm-hmm. Um, so meanwhile, um, a bunch of their friends were um, had had been through the ringer, and I should say right off, my parents were like many um, union activists in those days, um, rank and file members of the Communist Party. Whenever I say this at uh, a public event, I have to put it in context that is of uh, people who come of age during the Depression, when it was clear that 
um, that the capitalist system really had some serious flaws. Mm-hmm. So people who were in their 20s um, during the 30s, which would be my parents, um, and many of them, especially children of immigrants, mm-hmm. really drifted to the many options that were available on the left. Yeah. And the uh, the Communist Party was one of them. And it was for... Uh, you know, until the mid-40s, considered to be a legitimate political party that ran candidates in uh, uh, city and state elections. So um, my father, um, this, is, uh, <laughs> this is where the local and the national kind of meet. My father had a very promising student in the um, early 40s named Harvey Matuzo, and um, they stayed in touch somewhat, and Harvey was a political activist. He had a very big change of mind, or whether he was an opportunist uh, to begin with. But um, Harvey became a, an informer for the Senate Internal Security Committee and also for the FBI. Wow. And he, um, there was a investigation into uh, communist influence in the uh, New York City uh, public education, both high school and college. Mm-hmm. And before a Senate committee, Harvey named my father, huh. saying, I know this guy was a member of the Communist Party and... Uh, I found out only uh, last year that um, uh, among the other people that Harvey named uh, that day when they were talking about communist influence in the music business, Harvey also named Pete Seeger, mm-hmm. Brownie McGee, Tom Paley. Uh, so my father was in very good company. <laughs> yeah. We opened our um, show with a Pete Seeger song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, very fitting. (laughs) Exactly. Well, as soon as um, this testimony was given in Washington, my father knew that um, it was only a matter of time before he was going to be fired. And it it happened towards the end of the school year, 1953. So um, my father kind of jumped the gun and um, retired. And I still have the copy of the the student newspaper where he's interviewed hmm. saying, oh, I'm leaving. I'm really, I got this opportunity in private business that uh, was too good to pass up, and I'm really going to miss the kids. Hmm. And, you know, the whole story was clearly not there. Yeah. So he did go into um, a, a friend, family friend, had a uh, an art supply store that was very successful in Manhattan. And they were building this new thing called a shopping center in Westchester. And uh, this family friend uh, became a uh, partner with my father in opening. It was one of the first uh, art supply stores in Westchester County. So meanwhile, my mother was waiting and waiting and waiting until that she was going to be named by some of her erstwhile friends, you know, that, that some of um, the people that they knew uh, 
had decided to give names that they you know didn't want to lose their teaching jobs maybe they were under financial pressure at home mm-hmm. um, but um, so my mother w- was not called before the committee until 1956 this was the New York City Board of Education investigating committee mm-hmm. and um, thanks to the uh, Board of Education archives I get to see her 30 pages of testimony in which she said, um, I'll tell you anything you want to know about myself, but I'm not going to name anybody else. Mm-hmm. I couldn't live with myself if yeah. I did that. Yeah. So <clears throat> one thing that saved her um, was at the time the Feinberg Law was being challenged in the New York State Supreme Court. And... Um, and so it it was ultimately overturned, which meant that she could get away with being in contempt of the committee and not lose her job. So she kept her job until she retired in the seventies. Uh, okay. Um, so I should say that I did not know any of this until I was a teenager in the sixties mm-hmm. and got interested in all this stuff, and they were very open with me about what they went through. Yeah. And as an adult, I really became, really looking back and seeing how many decisions as a family um, were taken as a result of the all the uncertainty of the, the Red Scare mm. era. And just to be clear, so it wasn't around the content of what was being taught. It was more about affiliations and then the student that was an informer reporting Um, and getting your father's name. Well, yes and no. Um, um, You know, because there were math teachers and science teachers getting fired, Mm -hmm. it it was strictly uh, their, their political views away from the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be really interesting to imagine a math teacher getting a um, communist propaganda worked into a, <laughs> a math lesson. But I found out um, also kind of recently there is a wonderful book written uh, by a woman named Marjorie Hines, H-E-I-N-S, mm-hmm. um, about this whole era and she pointed out it was like a piece of the jigsaw puzzle coming together um, that so many of the teachers uh, in um, in the public schools, many of them were Jewish, and like my father, um, s- suffered from the anti-Semitism of the '30s that um, they could not. My father wanted to go to architecture school. But there was a quota, and so he turned to teaching. So other friends of theirs were also got turned away from graduate schools or professions that they would like to be in. So a lot of these um, children of uh, immigrants turned to teaching, and because they were lucky to get those jobs, they often were... Um, assigned to the jobs that that 
uh, other teachers didn't want, such as teaching in really poor areas in uh, Harlem or Brooklyn or the Bronx. And one of the things that the teachers' union was was organizing about was racist textbooks, uh, the history textbooks that painted a very benign picture of slavery. Mm. And um, that was one of their um, planks on their platform. Let's let's make sure that um, the way that history is taught has more to do with reality. Well, it turns out that the person who wrote these textbooks 10 years earlier was now the New York City superintendent of schools. So he did not take kindly to the uh, union activity. Mm-hmm. Rick, this is, uh, I think this is really relevant to what we're seeing a little bit in schools. Um, do you want to speak, could you speak maybe to some of the connections you're seeing between that and what uh, you're seeing in schools today? Because, you know, as a, as a teacher now, there's definitely um, this push into schools to, to challenge, uh, as teachers, the content that we're teaching. Right, and we are trying to to undo or unteach this, you know, these racist histories um, and narratives that we yeah. taught. So yeah, it's it's very hard to teach when somebody, whether real or not, um, is looking over your shoulder mm-hmm. to see whether you're giving um, what what the accurate information is, and that's why the the this this. Uh, critical race theory controversy is so um, so so much resonance with what happened um, back then and down to the creation of a boogeyman that is communism mm. in the old days mm-hmm. to um, you know if you teach uh, a certain way then you will be accused of being a communist and um, you know, somebody was pointing out in a interview I heard on the radio the other day that you'd be very hard-pressed to find one elementary school or junior high school teacher who is actually teaching critical race theory. It's, right. you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's a made-up um, boogeyman. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have kind of similar to this, uh, this act... Uh, this Feinberg law, um, a number of states already. Yeah, have, yes, uh, there's there's piece. there's like a new wave of uh, modern day Feinberg laws. Yeah, and even in New Hampshire, um, you know, we're here in Vermont with this broadcast, and and just over the border in New Hampshire, there's um, there's a law that's been passed that restricts how teachers can, can yeah. discuss race in their classrooms. Um, um, yes, I, I've read about some of these uh, some of these laws that are being promulgated, and uh, it's a bandwagon that that people are jumping on. Um, again, shades of what happened in the late '40s and '50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess um, I, I'm curious that about. With what's happening today, I was just thinking when you were talking about uh, the textbooks uh, that you were telling that story and the details around racism. I I currently am reading Toni Morrison's Beloved, oh, which which became a 
political issue in the Virginia election. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I, it's one of the reasons I read it because I, I own it and I've always meant to read it and I hadn't. So I thought, you know, I'm, this is a good time for me to read this. Yes, exactly. Uh, and, you know, it's a, a, a brutal book, a beautifully written book. Uh, makes me think a lot. And so it's interesting how there's these strands that come through or that are still really prominent today or are taking different forms, but a lot of it mm-hmm. is the same uh, root of it. Yes, you know, a friend of mine has put it that um, when, when, when I was working on my Red Scare book and talking about the ebb and flow of... <clears throat> Of, of history and uh, and he said uh, <laughs> um, it's a great way to put it he said uh, there are always um, people that will come out from under the rock that you turn over mm-hmm. it's it's a strand of American history that has always been there and sometimes the rock is not turned over and <laughs> I think uh, we're living through a period now when uh, uh, these forces have been unleashed once again. Mm-hmm. For sure. Rick, stay on the line with us. We're going to take a quick break. Um, sure. We'll be right back. So we're going to take a quick song break. Uh, this next song is by Paul Robertson, uh, Scandalize My Name. Met my brother the other day. I gave him my right hand, and just as soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Now do you call that a brother? No, no. You call that a brother? No, no. Call that a brother? No, no. Scandalize my My sister the other day I gave her my right hand And just as soon as ever my back was turned She too scandalized my name Now do you call that a sister? No, no You call that a sister? No, no Call that a sister? No, no My preacher the other day, I gave him my right hand, and just as soon as ever my back was turned, he to scandalize my name. Now, do you call that religion? No, no. You call that religion? No, no. Call that religion? No, no. Paul Robinson, Scandalize My Name. And this is Anna for WVEW uh, 107.7 FM. It's Indigo Radio. And we have today a very special guest, Rick Winston. Uh, Rick is the author of Red Scare in the Green Mountains, Vermont in the McCarthy era. And he, if you're just joining us, he's been talking to us about the history of uh, his own parents, um, that were New York public school teachers and some of the, 
things uh, and challenges that they faced and unions faced uh, during this era. And Rick, thank you for being with us. Um, we wanted to talk to you about if you could give us and our listeners a little bit of history. Uh, I read, I think it was a, either a speech by you or an article that you prefer to use the term Red Scare rather than mm -hmm. McCarthy era. Yes, I'll be happy to and talk would, about that. <laughs> great. I would love to have you talk about that. Yeah. Uh, but before I do, Paul Robeson, <laughs> very important figure and somebody who was totally, completely blacklisted by the U.S. government. Um, his passport taken away and... Um, uh, th there is uh, somebody, uh, I wish I could remember this uh, young, uh, a teacher in her 30s who has put together a suggested curriculum for studying this era. And as part of that, she did um, a bit of her own research about what textbooks teach about uh, this period in American history. And she found it, no surprise, woefully lacking. Hmm. And any mention of Paul Robeson in these various history books is always relegated to um, well-known black Americans. Mm -hmm. Nothing about uh, his politics. And can anyway. You could you touch on, can you just quickly touch on why he was blacklisted? What was the reasoning? Uh, well, he uh, was a very outspoken um, on the civil rights issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back to the 30s, you know, he was, uh, he had quite an amazing life. He was uh, an all-star football player at Rutgers University and then went on the stage, um, played Othello um, a number of times, uh, started having a concert career in the 30s, was actually started to have a movie career, but he became too outspoken for the um, uh, for the Hollywood studios, and he knew this was not in his future, so mm. and he left. Um, he was uh, very much in favor favor of uh, um, just uh, interracial activities, especially in the arts. He was very outspoken about his support for the Soviet Union. Mm. Although um, it is not really clear whether he was ever actually a member of the Communist Party. So um, he uh, was, he made a, uh, during an interview, he had a quote that was taken out of context and really, uh, they used it to really flay him, um, that he <clears throat> was quoted as saying that, uh, that American blacks uh, would not if there were a war with the Soviet Union, American, American blacks would refuse to fight. Hmm. So you can imagine what that uh, trouble that got him into in 1950. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this actually is a segue into your, your question about, um, you know, people use the term Red Scare and McCarthy era um, interchangeably sometimes. And... I had a big awakening when I spoke to a historian friend of mine and said, said I was working on a book about the Red Scare, and his question was, 
the first Red Scare or the second one? Hmm. I said, oh, <laughs> uh, the, the first one turns out to be around the time of World War One and the aftermath of World War One and the Russian Revolution. Hmm. And um, outspoken um, socialists like uh, Emma Goldman were being actually deported. Mm-hmm. And this is when the American Civil Liberties Union got their start as as a result of all the uh, prosecutions uh, <coughs> during that time. Um, so taking it from there said, oh, you know, this this uh, strain of anti-communism has really always been present as long as there have been communists, going back mm-hmm. to the fear of Karl Marx in the uh, 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, McCarthy, um, he, um, the way I put it is that <clears throat> he jumped on a bandwagon that was already in motion. Um, with the collapse of the alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union at the end of World War II, that the Soviet Union was now considered our next big enemy. Um, so the, what we think of as the Red Scare or the Second Red Scare really started before McCarthy himself got his headlines. And if we look at a timeline of all these events, the time that McCarthy spent on the national stage was really only from 1950 to 1954. Hmm. And I don't think anybody could argue that the, that the Red Scare ended in 1954 yeah. or ended in 1957 with McCarthy's death. Um, so Red Scare is a much more... It's um, it's a vivid phrase. It's got the color in it. It's got the fear in it. And um, rather than just calling something technically the McCarthy era as if it's uh, something like the Pleistocene era or the Mesozoic era um, or the Roaring Twenties, whatever, yeah. um, that the Red Scare really conveys a lot and... Uh, in the subtitle of my book, um, it's, it says Vermont in the McCarthy era, 1946 to 1960. Mm-hmm. And so before McCarthy and after McCarthy. And, um, and clearly the, the stake has not been uh, uh, drilled through the vampire's heart just mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was another one of our questions uh, do you want to go ahead, Josh? Yeah, um, like with that, so like what are the, I, I wonder, like what are some of the lessons to be learned from this, um, from this ter- time, right? And, and um, Yeah, you're fading out a little bit. Are you, you're asking what were the lessons from? Yeah, what would be some of the lessons learned out of yeah. that time for now for us? Well, um, I think some of the lessons have to do with the, um, the strength of, um, the institutions um, that, you know, somebody, in fact, it was writing about the movie High Noon. I heard the author, Glenn Frankel, interviewed on the radio, and Terry Gross was asking him, 
you know, so what what's what are the differences between now and then? And he said we saw during the Red Scare pretty much a cowardly collapse of major institutions, uh, higher education, the press, who loved McCarthy for uh, generating all those headlines, um, the um, establishment churches uh, often went, went along um, with McCarthy's charges. So um, Glenn Frankel was saying, and this interview is kind of right at the beginning of the Trump presidency, it is yet to be seen how strong our institutions will be when they're, uh, when they're challenged again. And speaking of um, the former president, um, uh, one thread that goes right from the uh, McCarthy era to the current day uh, involves the person of Roy Cohn. That's right. Um, Roy Cohn is a 20-something uh, attorney on the rise, was Joseph McCarthy's right-hand man. He was McCarthy's protege. And um, 30 years later, uh, Roy Cohn was a mentor to Donald Trump. Donald Trump's father said to him when he wanted to make it, get out of Queens and make it big in Manhattan, he said, well, you've got to make friends with Roy Cohn. He can really open a lot of doors for you. And, and uh, it's clear the lessons that uh, Trump learned from Roy Cohn. Uh, just never apologize, never back down. Uh, keep going with your uh, baseless accusations, make up um, dem demeaning nicknames for everybody you're slamming. Mm -hmm. um, so we'd have to say that uh, Trump learned his lessons pretty well. Yeah, it seems like also when I think about uh, Trump and a lot of things that are going on today is the, and I think it relates to how you describe using the Red Scare, is this pool on emotion or fear yes yes right yes where i th i think um it's not an original thought you know wherever there is fear there is going to be um, the danger of um, these uh, um, boogeymen or our children are getting their minds poisoned mm -hmm. or we got to be careful of uh giving this particular person a, uh, a megaphone. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, exactly. yes, and, and uh, during the 40s and 50s, it was fear of the outside plus fear of, uh, you know, what was going to be coming in, threatening on the world stage from the Soviet Union, but then what was uh, the people who were, conceived of as uh, subverting from within. Would you put a name to, I mean, I mean well, maybe I should ask, is, is there a scare today? Would you describe it in any sort of way? Mm. It's kind of hard to make up those um, uh, phrases when you're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. um, now this is a <coughs> kind of a revelation that I had that um, that um, 
the Trump era, whatever that means, mm-hmm. was was not going to end with his uh, removal from office. That um, and like uh, McCarthy, the uh, the ground was very fertile before his appearance, and and um, it's it's like there's. Um, this could be the Pandora era, <laughs> that, you know, a box of all the fears in America has been opened, and uh, we don't know how to get it back in, whether it's, uh, you know, fear of uh, teachers teaching the truth about uh, slavery or, well, you, you, you can name all the other yeah. fears there are. I was wondering... Because, uh, so we're here in Brattleboro, Wyndham County. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us any history from this location. I know that you, I think at one time, maybe interviewed Bill Hinton, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. far, the Chinese scholar and farmer. I was wondering, could you tell us about that or any other interesting history yeah, around this area? Yeah, well, since it's um, kind of local, um, let's, we'll, we'll talk about... Um, um, William Hinton and the Hinton family, a pretty illustrious Southern Vermont family. Uh, <clears throat> um, some of your listeners may be familiar with this history already, but uh, Carmelita Hinton, who's the matriarch of the Hinton clan, um, was the one who founded the Putney School in the early 30s. And um, she had three children. The two older ones actually went to Putney School. Um, ah, sorry, the two younger ones. The Jean uh, 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 was already uh, too old for high school. Uh, but uh, both uh, William Hinton and his sister Joan Hinton became uh, very active supporters of the Chinese Revolution, led by Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai. And they were two of the few Americans who were in, who were actually in China and witnessed the uh, changeover in 1949. Uh, Joan Hinton um, actually never came back to the U.S. to live. She stayed there in China until her death in 2010, I think. Um, so, uh, so Joan Hinton had been a an atomic physicist. She was clearly a brilliant young woman who um, did her graduate work at the University of Chicago and was recruited to be out uh, on the team at Los Alamos. So she witnessed the first uh, atom bomb tests, and she was a number of scientists who were so terrified when the bomb was actually used. They had kind of convinced themselves that, well, nobody would actually use this. It was going to be just a deterrent. So she um, said, I'm, I'm through with being a nuclear physicist. And uh, William Hinton, who was already in China doing uh, rehabilitation, uh, rural rehabilitation work, uh, encouraged her to come to China. So that's how she wound up there. Um, At some point, it became known to the U.S. government that uh, 
gee, there's a nuclear physicist, an American, who's living in China. Uh, we should keep an eye on her. She might be really dangerous. Um, and they didn't know that she was uh, living three hours from the uh, nearest city without any electricity, and it's not likely that she was going to be much of a threat. But for personal reasons, William Hinton decided to um, return to America in 1953. And when he did, um, everything that he had written in China, he was compiling notes about what he had observed in one Chinese rural village. All of his notes were impounded by the... Uh, well, first by the customs and then turned over to the Senate Internal Security Committee. Wow. So um, William Hinton was called before the Senate in the summer of 1954, and um, he, he was a very reluctant um, participant, and he gave the, I think he, he gave the Fifth Amendment 75 times. Hmm. And it was, a, it was a really critical moment for Putney School because people who disagreed with their educational principles could, you know, they had a, an issue to attack Carmelita with. But she uh, refused to budge. She said, I support my son, I support what he's doing, and they had no right to inquire about his political beliefs. Um, so uh, he, um, William Hinton wound up making a barnstorming tour of the U.S. Um, talking about his experiences in China. And as part of the deal, would uh, cook a Chinese meal for everybody. <laughs> so um, so was able to support himself doing this and that. And meanwhile, sued the U.S. government to give his notes back and uh, eventually won that suit in that book became a classic uh, called Fan Shen. Oh, yeah, I have that It book. came out in the mid-'60s, and it really, I think it really opened a lot of people's eyes about what was uh, going on in China. Yeah. Um, Hinton really said that, that, in a way, it was good that his notes were taken away um, because nobody would have wanted to see this book. Huh see the light of day in the uh, in the early 50s but by 1960 um, and he had um, really sharpened a lot of his ideas and observations oh, that's interesting too yeah I, I could see that leading to then people wanting to read it knowing that his notes had been taken away too yeah um, so yes his uh, sister Joan um, wound up marrying another American over there named Sid Angst, and the two of them became very, very fervent, uh, you know, die-hard supporters of Mao till their, till their uh, dying day. Hmm. That's really interesting local history. Rick? Yeah, and it's. Uh, I think I may even have started the, uh, the, uh, chapter in in my book in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, here at one end of the um, the scale is this teeny tiny Vermont town. How much? <laughs> how many people are in Putney? I don't mm -hmm. know. Yeah. And then on the other, the one of the most earth-shaking events of the 20th century, 
the uh, Chinese Communist Revolution. Mm. And uh, they are um, uh, intricately connected. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and, and with those, like, right, such a, we think about, Vermont's often is thought about such a small piece in the world. Um, like, Rick, could you speak to the importance of teaching about this, these, these his, this history, this, these connections um, between what's going or what has happened here and, and um, you know, what was happening in the world, you know, teaching about that importance um, for people. Yeah, I, 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 did, I didn't really catch a lot of what you said. I'm oh, sorry. Oh, Rick, let me, I'll repeat it for you. I think this you is... Rep- yes, yeah, rephrase. let me repeat that for you. So what we were, because we're teachers, right? So And we're, a lot of us are in the K through 12 schools. I actually teach at the University of uh, Massachusetts, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm a doctoral student there right now in public health. And I, I guess we're, we would love your thoughts on the importance of teaching the history of this, um, both like the local Vermont history, but also, you know, we came to your presentation that was so thorough and rich with history. Uh, what do you see as the importance of, of teaching this today? Yeah, well, I think... Um <clears throat> like many people, I am, I'm watching with horror as things unfold in this country and the, um, the, uh, the prospect that there is going to be something like a civil war again. You know, it's easy to, to imagine two countries, uh, one where abortion is legal and people can vote mm-hmm. and the other, well, let's not go into what the other might look like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that great old saying about those who ignore history uh, are condemned to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly true. And I think the more we see about what, how, how historical events developed, um, I think it can really prevent us from... Um, falling into traps that we might otherwise avoid and how to think about things and how to organize around them. And we see, uh, you know, I went to um, college in the 60s, and I was um, at Columbia when um, when the uh, buildings were taken over. Mm-hmm. And um, I get together with um, still in touch with uh, my friends from that era, and there's a lot of um, retrospective stock taking of uh, you know we really this could have been done a lot better, and you know we had these people on our side, but we made no attempt to get these other people on our side, and mm-hmm. and some of those lessons are very very hard won. Yeah. Um, um, so I think I'm a firm believer in the more you um, study history, the better equipped you are to uh, to take on what's uh, just ahead. Mm-hmm. That's great. Thank you for that. And Rick, we're, we are winding down our show. I uh, mm-hmm. love to hear, you know, what's what are you up to? You were just here in Brattleboro. Do you have any more writing projects? I, I think you're teaching currently. I'd love to hear what you're yeah. doing. I, I actually had started a writing project um, 
that I might get back to someday about <laughs> about what happened in Vermont during the Vietnam War era and um, what was the scene with uh, draft resistance here and uh, the unrest at the uh, University of Vermont and other places. Um, I've kind of put that aside for a much more fun project, but also um, has to do with culture, and that is that for many years, I, um, with uh, with some other people, but it was mainly uh, my uh, project, um, ran the Savoy Theater uh, in Montpelier, mm-hmm. a one-screen um, independent and art movie house. So I am writing a kind of a memoir about how that got started and uh, everything that went into my own film history education and then uh, the history of the theater and the place it occupies in the culture of uh, central Vermont. That's great. Well, I mean, we, uh, I mean, not only are we teachers around here, we also, uh, both of us work within the Spark teacher license program that's in Southern Vermont. So we mm-hmm. would love to have, we'd love to stay connected and have you come and talk to our students sometime. Love I mean, to do that. You're a wealth of knowledge. So it's, it's really awesome to, um, to meet you and have you on the show too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rick. We really appreciate it. Oh, great. Sorry um, about Josh's love, mic. love to do it, and great to meet you the other night in person. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Rick, and we yeah. hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Thanks for being yeah, with us today. Bye-bye. Bye, Rick. Bye, Rick. All right. That was uh, Rick Winston that we s- just spent the hour with. He is the, the author of uh, The Red Scare in the Green Mountains, Vermont in the McCarthy era, uh, he's he's such a film historian. We didn't get to ask him a lot of questions around that, but I mean, Josh and I had gone to the event, so we will hold that knowledge in our heads. <laughs> and hopefully be able to share it around with people. Um, but we'll, hopefully we'll have him on again. I mean, he's he really has a lot of uh, knowledge to share with us. And sorry about Josh's mic. I don't I know. know what was going on. It's Yeah, as we were joking before, amateur hour before we got on the air. <laughs> so we're coming to the end, and... We hope you all enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Uh, like we said, we have a film event coming up with the Spark Teacher Program. That's going to be on December 3rd. And uh, more information to follow. Josh, yeah, do you so, want to take us out? Yeah. So um, along with uh, Keeping the Trend, we found a song called Salt of the Earth. Um, and this is by a cover by Betty Lovett. I believe the original song was by the Rolling Stones. And, and Salt of the Earth, just real quick, was a... A movie that was blacklisted. An entire film blacklisted, yeah. Yeah, and it was because they thought it was it was about the uh, Mexican Americans copper. No, it was a zinc mining. uh, No, it was a copper mining. Copper mining uh, strike, and I think the film was around 1954. Yeah, they actually used the 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 copper mine workers in the film as well. So interesting history there. All right. Well, thank you for listening. And we'll be back next week. Um, I've got a show lined up on. Human security. Uh, I'll be interviewing Bill Wyman, not of the Rolling Stones, maybe of the Rolling Stones. I don't know. You'll have to tune in to find out. But anyways, uh, Salt of the Earth by uh, Betty Levette to take us out. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.
a drink to the hard-working people. Let's drink to the lowly of birth. I want to raise my glass to the good and the evil. Let's drink to the salt of the earth. Say a prayer for our hard-fighting soldiers. Give some thought to their life-risking work. How about a prayer for their spouses and children? They keep the home fires burning and still till the earth. of a hazeless crowd A swirling mass of gray, black and white They don't look real to me To the salt of the earth. 